Have you ever been in a situation where you felt completely helpless? A situation where everything was outside of your control and there was nothing that you could do. You were just along for the ride. There's been several situations like that, but my mind goes to a specific instance. It, it was just a split second that this happened, but it, it was one of those moments where it was the longest split second ever. Everything seemed to slow down. I was in, I think I was in college at Bob Jones at the time, and on a weekend, my friends and I had taken a boat up to uh, this lake. My friend's dad had a boat, let us have it. So we went, and we were, we were tubing, and we were doing all this kinds of stuff on the lake all day, and we had a blast. And, and finally, we made our way over to, there was this, there was this rock on the lake. And, and you climbed your way up, and you were probably 30, 40 feet up, and you could jump off into the, into the water. Well, I decided that instead of just jumping, I wanted to dive off. I wanted to take it to the next level. I want to dive. And so I climb up to the highest point, about 30 to 40 feet up. And 30 to 40 feet is a lot higher at the top than it looks at the bottom. <laughs> so I stood there, and I looked at it, and then I'd back up for a little bit and think about it a little bit more, and then I'd step up, and I'd get ready to go, and, and my friends keep coming, and they're jumping off this whole time. Come on, Josh. I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to dive off. And once I said that, then I had to do it. I had no choice. See, what I was scared of, my biggest fear, was that when I, when I dove, that I would over-rotate, and then I would land on my back, and that would not be fun from 40 feet up. So that was my big concern. So when I finally got up the courage, I get to the edge, and it's just, it's time to do it. So I jump. And I'm so scared about over-rotating that I make sure to get straight up and down. And on my way down, I realize all of a sudden that I haven't jumped far enough out. I was so scared of over-rotating that I didn't get out away from the rock. And so I'm literally just a few inches from this rock as I'm going straight down. And I remember as I'm falling, thinking, man, if there is a, a jut out under this water, if the rock juts out at all, I'm going to hit this, I'm going to break my neck, I'm going to die. Right here, right now, this is the end. And I'm thinking that the whole way that I'm falling down. And there was nothing I could do about it at that point. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't, you know, back up, all right, now I'm going to jump out farther. I was stuck. I was just along for the ride. I had to hit that water, and I just had to hope that there was nothing there. I couldn't see. I just had to hope. And thankfully, I hit the water and shot out away from the rock, and I ended up being all right. But as we come to Daniel, chapter 1 this evening, we come to a situation or if you put yourself in the shoes of, of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that's what it must have felt like for them. Everything is completely out of their control. They don't know if they're going to live another day. They don't know what it's going to be like. They're just along for the ride and there is nothing. There is nothing that they can do to change anything that is going on around them. The book of Daniel is a book that we know fairly well, right? We know the stories of Daniel. We know the, the Daniel in the lion's den. We know the story of, of uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the, the fiery furnace. 
These, these, these tales that, that seem so far beyond, so great. These things that we have heard our whole lives. And yet behind it all in the book of Daniel is a God. A God who's in complete control at every moment. In fact, the theme of Daniel is the faithfulness of God. A God who is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of his people. As, you look, as we look at this passage this evening, we'll see the setting of Daniel, the situation of Daniel, and the sovereignty of God in Daniel. Daniel himself is a contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. At the time, as we come to our passage this evening, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, he's probably just a young man, no more than 15 years old. He lived to be approximately 85 to 90 years old. He lived through the whole captivity. I love, I love history, so one of the things I do a lot of times when I start uh, a series like this is I'll back up to see what's going on in the rest of the world at this time in history. Where are we in history? So around the world, when Daniel dies, so by the end of his life, around 537 B.C., Think about this. Confucius is in China, and he would have been about 14 years old. Buddha is in India, and he would have been about 46 years old. This is, it's fascinating to me to put that kind of stuff uh, into the context of where we are, not just in the Bible, but in the larger world history. Maybe that's not interesting for you, but I find that, I find that fascinating. But as Daniel 1 starts out, we have the setting in the first two verses. And we see that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this puts us in about 606 to 605 B.C. 606 to 605 B.C. There's actually some argument about the dating of this, not the issue that people would raise is that Jeremiah in the passage says that it's actually the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And Daniel here says it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. But the answer is a very simple answer. Uh, it's that Daniel, being raised as a Babylonian, as we will see, is using the Babylonian dating, whereas Jeremiah is using uh, Judean dating. Uh, in Babylonia, they did not uh, count the first year of a king's reign as part of his reign. It was a year when he was uh, just ascending to the throne. And so this would be then, according to that, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, but according to Babylon, uh, the, fifth year, the, the third year. And so that's where we find ourselves in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Judah, as you may realize, is the southern kingdom of Israel. At this point in history, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been, uh, the northern tribes have already been carried away uh, into their own captivity in 721 B.C., a little over 100 years earlier, by the Assyrians. So in this time, the southern kingdom has kept going. Until now. Jehoiakim himself, king of, Judea, of Judah, 
was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho in 609 BC. His father Josiah had died in battle against Pharaoh. Another king had taken over, but as the Pharaoh came back through, he deposed that king and set Jehoiakim up. Jehoiakim promised faithfulness to this king. In fact, Jehoiakim put all of his eggs in that basket. He looked to the king of Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh of Egypt, rather than to God. And in Jeremiah 22, 18 to 23, Jeremiah announces that because of that, there is coming judgment. So here we are just three years later in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And here comes that judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here we're introduced to another figure, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most, uh, as one of the commentators put it, he's one of the most competent rulers of ancient times. His name is all over scripture. In fact, more is said of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament than any other foreign ruler, except maybe the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus. God uses this king, this pagan king, this foreign king. He uses him for his purposes. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Again, put yourself in the shoes of Daniel. Put yourself in the shoes of these other young men. As a young teenager, no more than 15 years old, your city is being besieged by the greatest king with the greatest army in the world. The city that you love. Not only is it besieged, it is overthrown. This verse 2 tells us, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God Nebuchadnezzar not only besieged Jerusalem he conquers he conquers Jehoiakim king of Jerusalem is given into his hand not only that, but he goes into the temple and takes some articles from the house of God. This would have been a normal practice in the day. As you conquer a people, it would have been normal to take their God and to take it back to your God. Your God, who by your conquest, you have proven is greater. So he comes, he takes these articles out of the house of God, he carries them into the land of Shinar, another name for Babylon, to the house of his God, Marduk. He brought the articles into the treasury house of his God. As we jump into the book of Daniel this evening, this is the setting of the book of Daniel. This is where we are in history. This is where we are in time. Jerusalem has been besieged it has been conquered. The king has been taken. Articles from the house of God have been carried away. This is not the final deportation. There's actually three deportations, and this is the first. Here, we see the Jerusalem conquered Several years later, in 597, 
Once again, there will be another deportation. And then in 586, finally, finally they will destroy, Nebuchadnezzar will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. This is where we find ourselves, 605. Jerusalem has been conquered. The king has been carried away. That's the setting as we come to this passage. Now in verses 3 to 7, we see a specific situation. How did Daniel get to where Daniel is? So verse 3 tells us, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, Bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and to whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. Not only has their city been conquered, not only has their king been deposed, but here they're carried away. Away from home. It's actually a wise move by Nebuchadnezzar. It serves two purposes. First, it serves as a warning against uprising. Jerusalem has been conquered. Nebuchadnezzar puts a king in place and he leaves it to, to run itself, but he takes some of their young men away. It's a warning against further uprisings in Jerusalem. I have your young men. Obey me. Secondly, it aids the king in ruling his kingdom well. Why would you not take the best from the lands that you conquer? Why not take more counselors? Not only would it aid him well in ruling his kingdom and learning, it would aid him well in ruling that specific area. They could not only will he teach them his practices, they can teach him of their practices. This is how this king will respond. This is how the people will respond. This is how they will see that. It's a wise move. It takes these young men, these good-looking men, these men who are gifted in wisdom and uh, possess knowledge, who are quick to understand. These are not just men off the street. These are men who uh, come from the king's descendants and the nobles. They are young men who have been taught, who have learned, who have sat under teachers. The king takes them and he teaches them. Notice he takes care of them. He appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. He's setting them up to succeed. It's in his best interest that they succeed. He's giving them the food that they need, the wine that they need. He's not just giving them small rations. He's caring for them. He's setting them up with three years of training so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. He takes these young men. He gives them new names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To the chief eunuchs he gave names. To Daniel he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. He's stripping away who they are. 
He's making them Babylonians. But as we'll see as the story goes forward, he can change how they look on the outside. But he can't change their faith on the inside. Their God is still in control. In fact, that's the next thing that we see. We see the setting. The conquest of Jerusalem. We see the situation. These three men have been carried away into Babylon. But finally, don't miss this. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. The theme of Daniel is God's faithfulness. And Daniel makes it very clear right here from the beginning that this captivity is not done despite God. It's by God. God's people have been unfaithful. But God remains faithful. In fact, all throughout Daniel, God is in control. Look here at verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that, that he has conquered Jerusalem because he has the greatest army. He thinks it's because his God is greater. But what does verse 2 tell us? He came, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And because his army was greater, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, fell into his hand. Is that what it says? It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. The Lord gave. Nebuchadnezzar might have had the greatest army in the world at this time. He might have been the best leader, the most competent leader in the world at this time. But God is still in control. And if it were not in God's plan for Nebuchadnezzar to besiege and to conquer Jerusalem, then he would not have besieged or conquered Jerusalem. In fact, look with me, if you will, at verse 9. Verse 9 goes on to say, and we'll see this, Lord willing, uh, next week, but now, uh, start in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Look with me, if you will, at verse 17. As for these young, four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They are in the situation in which they find themselves because God has put them in this situation. And in this situation, God does not abandon them. They may be in a foreign land, their homeland, the, the city that they grew up in, may have been sieged and conquered, but their God is still in control. Even in Babylon, their God is there. And even in Babylon, God brings Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Even in Babylon, God gives these young men wisdom and knowledge and skill. God is sovereign, not just in Israel. God is sovereign over the world. He is sovereign in, in, in Jerusalem, and he is sovereign in the courts of Babylon. God is in 
control. God is faithful. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. I was talking to um, Pastor Johnston this morning about Daniel, and he said, really, it's like two different books. And he's right. You have chapters 1 to 6, which is more of history, and then you have chapters 7 to 12, which is prophecy. And even in that, God shows his faithfulness. God is faithful all throughout Daniel's time in Babylon. And God shows in the last several chapters of Daniel, not only am I faithful in Israel, not only am I faithful in Babylon, I will be faithful to the end of time. I will do these things. God is in control. From the present chaos to future promises, God is accomplishing his purpose. Not just in Israel and in Babylon and in Daniel's life, but in the world. What a comforting truth for us this evening after the week, really after the year that we have had. In the current political chaos of our day, God is in control. As scary as the future may seem, God is in control. God is in control. The same God who raised up Nebuchadnezzar is the same God who is in control today. He's in complete control. There's not one person in a place of power that is not there because God has put them there. Whether you and I agree with them or not, God has put them there. And the book of Daniel is written to a people in the midst of chaos to remind them that though they had forgotten God, God had not forgotten them. I think we so often forget that first point. We look at the great stories in the book of Daniel. Oh man, that I had faith like Daniel. But think about it. As a 15-year-old, seeing your city burn, being ripped away, taken to a foreign land. And yet in the midst of all that, still being faithful to your God. I'm sure that Daniel was tempted to think maybe God's not in control. I better do whatever I can to stay alive because I don't see any evidence on what is going on around me that God is still in control. But Daniel chooses to believe. Even as his city burns, even as his family is stripped away, even as he is taken to a foreign land, he chooses to believe. He chooses to be faithful. Why? Because Daniel believes that God is faithful. And God is faithful. As he was faithful yesterday in Israel, he is faithful today in Babylon, and he'll be faithful tomorrow wherever that may be. And Daniel believes that. He knows that. And so Daniel is faithful. 
And so therefore, for you and I, as we launch into this book of Daniel, even today as we just sit back and, and we kind of pause and we just think about the setting, what's going on, where are we, what's the theme, even in that, we find reason to be comforted. Even in that, we find reason to remember the hope that is ours in Christ. And even in that, we find reason to be faithful. Because our God is faithful. God is faithful. And because of that, we can be faithful. We must be faithful. Daniel's faithfulness is not based on the circumstances around him. His faithfulness is based on who he knows God to be.